0: I'm here with Richard Dunn. He is the founder of the Strategic Institute, and before that, he was the General Counsel for DARPA, the NASA Deputy Associate General Counsel, and a Judge Advocate in the Air Force. Rick, thanks for being on Acquisition Talk. Pleased to be here. Great. So I'd like to start with some history, which I always think is important for this kind of context here. And how did we get to where we are today with the Federal Acquisition Regulation?
1: So when our country started, we didn't have any acquisition laws or regulations, but we had... Government contracts. Actually, before the country started, you may remember in the Revolutionary War, the Continental Army was supplied by donations from states, and that didn't always work very well. And so finally, the uh, Congress under the Articles of Confederation appointed Robert Morris to be in charge of supplying the army. And Robert Morris was a an experienced merchant, so he knew how to sell and buy things and uh, acquire things and uh, started the pattern of. of uh, contracting for the government by basically being open about what the needs were and dealing with reputable people. So basically competition, openness, and contractor reliability. So the Constitution came into effect, and uh, again, we had no contracting laws or regulations, but we had departments that were created, and they became corporate entities, as uh, in the view of the law. And we had appropriations. And that was the basis of contracting, uh, an agency with a mission, and then the authority to enter into contracts. And the Supreme Court in 1831 said government agencies, corporations in, in that sense, uh, have the inherent right to contract. Well, that didn't last all that long, actually, because with a hint of scandal, Congress enacted legislation governing uh, contracting for the post office. The military followed. So uh, we began to have laws and uh, and regulations early in the 19th century. Originally, these followed the pattern that Robert Morris had created, which was basically advertising, formal advertising, um, uh, sealed bids, and then award to the person that came in with the low price. That was uh, basically the contracting regime that went on. However, when we got to wartime, we found that that didn't always work so well. And that that system broke down and Congress would enact laws that suspended the normal contracting statutes during the course of the war. When the war was over, we went back to normal contracting statutes. And that occurred all the way up through World War II. And at the beginning of World War II, we had a massive industrial mobilization. And companies that had done no business with the government at all. Suddenly, you know, heavy engineering companies, companies that built locomotives were now building tanks. Companies that built automobiles were building tanks and airplanes and all the other needs of the government. And they did this rather seamlessly uh, without any great, you know, they didn't have to bring in government contract attorneys or uh, specialists. I mean, the government sort of did business in a business-like manner, and we mobilized this extensive effort. So we won World War II. And at the end of World War II, and people look back at that experience and they, and they said, uh, wow, if those new kinds of statutes that allow for negotiated procurement, they allow for sole source awards under certain, certain circumstances, if those were all good enough for wartime, why aren't they good enough for peacetime? And why don't we create a, uh, a contracting regime that allows that? 1947, the Armed Services Procurement Act was enacted. And in addition to formal advertised and low-bid uh, contracting, negotiated procurement was allowed. Sole source procurement under certain circumstances was allowed. And there were many other flexibilities that were built into that statute. Doesn't that sound great? What way to do business? Well, except the president of the United States was a guy named Harry Truman, And Harry Truman gained his fame as a senator because of the Truman Commission overlooking government public works and contracting during World War II. And Truman used to go around and he would find a construction project going on where there was some workman, you know, leaning on his shovel and not doing uh, any work. And so this became the characteristic Now we're talking about you know, an army of 250,000 growing to several million within just a couple of years. So some inefficiency in the way the army did business is probably to be expected. But in any event, when the statute that enacted the Armed Services Procurement Act was transmitted to the Secretary of Defense, President Truman put a cover letter on it. And he said, you know, this statute provides you and your contracting officers with a great deal of flexibility, but I expect you to follow the letter of the law and to, you know, and he went on and on and on and basically said, you know, you better create some regulations that keep this thing in order. Well, the Army's first edition under the new statute was 300 pages of regulations and it hasn't gotten any smaller since so we originally had the armed services procurement regulation after a number of years it was the defense acquisition regulation we had uh, uh, the commission on government procurement as early as 1972 saying that there was a mass and maze of regulation and of course we had the civilian agencies each of which had their own procurement regulation And in 1984, there was an attempt to rationalize this with the creation of the Federal Acquisition Regulation, the same set of regulations that we're operating under today, where both civilian departments and military departments operate under the same set of rules, sort of, because if you read the FAR, the Federal Acquisition Regulation, certain of the sections say, you know, for the military departments, NASA and Coast Guard, blah, 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 blah. But for the civilian departments, this. Approval levels are different, and there's a number of instances of different. The other thing about FAR, it it said agency supplements should be kept to a minimum. They shouldn't just repeat what's in FAR. I mean, so there was an attempt to try to ease the burden of regulation that had grown up from the 1940s through through the 1980s, and it's never been successful. And by the 1990s, we were going through wave after wave of acquisition reform. But the system is basically a highly regulated purchasing system. The entire mindset is on, you know, how do I get the best value for the government by keeping the cost down? The focus is on cost. And there, of course, there's there's regulatory mindset. The first duty of a contracting officer, I mean, this far says this very clearly, is to make sure that all the laws, executive orders, and regulations are complied with before you start to use good sense and business judgment. I mean, it says you're allowed to do that, but only after you do all this first order business. So that's what's gotten us where we are today. We have this very highly regulated system, and we have a workforce that has basically been told your most important job is complying with the regulations. And their their training is such that in some of the agency uh, training materials, even in the defense acquisition university system, you know, you'll see this slide of a person behind jail bars. And the slide basically says, you know, follow the FAR or you will go to jail. So that's sort of the mindset of where people are. And so following the regulations becomes the first order of business and using good sense and business judgment sort of takes second seat.
0: Well, yeah. Thanks for that. That was a really good uh, overview of the history. I think it's interesting. Before World War Two, it seemed that oh well, the classic advertise and then sealed bid process. That's very democratic, right? It's, it feels democratic. The best, lowest price, best competitor wins the competition. But then after the war with Asper, we had these exemptions, and then the exemptions. I think there was eleven of them that became the rule. Basically, I think I saw in. Uh, the missiles sector, it was like 75 to 80% of all contracts were cost plus. And then McNamara tried to change that tide and push it more back towards fixed price. But it was all still within this system that I think you're talking about that became the FAR. Whether it's fixed price or whether it's cost-plus, there's this kind of mindset of these rules and regulations and the people acting within it, they don't want to become – you know, behind those bars, so to speak. But then it's not just fixed price, right? There's other types of non-FAR contracting that has been going on for a while, and you're kind of one of the leading voices here. So I'd like to use for you to give us a little bit of background on other transactions, and, you know, starting with the SPACE Act and Telstar Satellite, and then kind of bring that up. You know, how is this different than what we've been just talking about, the fixed price versus the cost plus within the FAR kind of world?
1: So the SPACE Act. There was a man named Paul Dembling, who was the deputy general counsel of the old NACA, the National Advisory Committee on Aeronautics. And he was the primary author of the National Aeronautics and Space Act. And, and what Paul Dembling did when he was confronted with this challenge and this opportunity of, of drafting the, the organic legislation for NASA, the new organization that was to be, looked at GAO, then called General Accounting Office, now Government Accountability Office, decisions. And he sort of, sort of surveyed all of the GAO rationale of why government agencies couldn't do things. And so he attempted to write a statute that, w- I mean, this was a new agency. Space was new. These were new challenges. And, and his idea was, you know, we're going to need a lot of authority and flexibility if we're actually going to win the space race. Because, I mean, we're now in 1958, and in 1957, the Soviets had orbited the first uh, artificial Earth satellite, and many people thought the United States was, was behind, and the United States was inferior to the Soviet Union, and therefore, President Eisenhower, one, allowed the creation of DARPA. DARPA was originally America's space agency. For six months before NASA was created, it was both America's military and civil space agency. NASA spun up to operational uh, speed under the National Aeronautics and and Space Act. And in the contracting regime, what Paul Demling did was he laid out a whole, in Section 203 of the National Aeronautics and Space Act, by the way, it's been recodified now. It's got its own Title 51 of the U.S. Code now. So it's a different section. But in the original Section 203 of the statute, he had a litany of contracting terms, contracts, licenses, cooperative agreements. And then at the end, And such other transactions as may may be necessary in the work of the administration on such terms as the administrator deems appropriate. Sort of covered everything. So that's where the other transactions phrase comes from. Absolutely. From from (laughs) the exact words in the National Aeronautics and and Space Administration. So... Telstar 1. In the late 1950s, the idea, I mean, obviously Sputnik had shown you could have an artificial Earth satellite. It had been hypothesized in the 1940s and even earlier. And then the question was, well, what do you do with that? And one of the obvious answers was, well, there's a communications issue. I mean, we, we have radio beams that are bounced off of atmospheric layers and can have a much longer range than just uh, normal uh, radio transmission. But if you actually had a radio station above the earth that could receive and retransmit signals, you know, you could potentially have a very long range communication system. The idea was that, you know, wow, that has a lot of civil application, but it also has a lot of military application. At the end of the 50s and in the early 1960s, both NASA and the Department of Defense were working on communication satellites and then American Telegraph and Telephone Telegraph Company comes to NASA and says, "We're working on a communication satellite. You have a monopoly on space launch. We would like you to launch our satellite so that we can carry out experimentations." Well, this confronted NASA and the government more broadly with the issue of, well, we, the government are working on communication satellite program. Should we partner with industry that's basically looks like they're a competitor? of ours in this uh, business. A few years earlier, President Eisenhower had issued a policy which today is known as OMB Circular A76. And today, it's sort of been stood on its head. But the original thought behind the A76 concept was that the government should not be in competition with its citizens. If there's something that the citizens can do that the government can take advantage of, the government doesn't need to have its own capability of doing that. In any event, that that rationale uh, penetrated into uh, NASA leadership, and they said, why shouldn't we cooperate with AT&T and allow them to launch the satellite? So they entered into a Space Act agreement, and according to the Space Act agreement, AT&T, the government didn't pay AT&T to do anything. AT&T paid the government for the space launch. So the flow of funds was from the private sector into the government to reimburse the reimburse the government for its cost in launching the private satellite so not not only did AT&T have a technological achievement but it also confronted government with what do we do about private sector communication satellite and they ended up president kennedy ended up creating the communication satellite corporation so the interesting uh, aspect of that is that we uh, the government partnered with private industry private industry paid the entire cost of developing and uh, launching the satellite But it also didn't just drive technology, it also drove public policy and uh, the government then decided that it made sense to uh, allow private industry to get into the communication satellite business. The government could then just become a customer of an existing business rather than having to maintain its own separate capability of, uh, of satellite communication you know the brilliance of that is that the maintenance sustainment upgrades of that capability are all done with private financing not with government dollars and yet the government can be a customer and participate in the economies of scale along with with other folks and I mean, there's there are profound implications to that model, and you would think that the government would want to do that whenever possible, but
0: oftentimes it, it doesn't. <laughs> right. I think we're kind of reliving that. Like, they tried it in the 90s, and didn't seem to work. And then today, we seem to be on the cusp of another commercialization of space, and there seems to be a little bit of blowback to that model. So a lot of people have been saying, like, well, there's enough flexibility in the FAR already so, what does OTS really add to people, or do you not really agree? With, I absolutely with that idea? do
1: not agree. There's enough flexibility in the FAR. There's fundamental. This, this is one of the things that people don't understand when they talk about OTS as being a niche authority or being just another tool. OTS are fundamentally different than FAR because FAR is a highly regulated purchasing system. And it requires companies to do things that they wouldn't normally do in a commercial context. And that's why we have a a consolidated defense industry that is a tiny, tiny part of our broader national industrial base because of this overhead of rules and regulations. I mean, when we had the defense downturn at the end of the Cold War, the defense industry consolidated. They didn't diversify into the commercial sector. Why? Because they couldn't. Uh, Norm Augustine was asked that question and he said, well, why doesn't Lockheed Martin diversify and become a multi, you know, a government contractor with a a broad base of of commercial business? And he said, well, because we can't do commercial accounting. Well, that's a shorthand way of saying, you know, we do have to do government accounting and we have all the other overhead that the government imposes on us. In uh, the 1990s, DOD chartered Coopers and Lybrand to do a study of cost drivers in defense acquisition. And Coopers and Lybrand came back in and said, just the top 10 cost drivers in the DOD system that have no commercial counterpart and don't have an obvious value added to them drive 18% of the DOD acquisition budget. Well, commercial companies are not going to take on an 18% cost premium in many cases just to do business with the federal government because it will make them uncompetitive in their commercial marketplace. And by the way, most estimates are a lot more than 18%.
0: Yeah, Elmer, uh, Comptroller General Elmer Stott said he estimated between 30 and 50%. And then there was another guy from NPS, Judson, who was who was putting it at 50% back in the 70s. So back in that time, the figures I saw, everyone was saying thinking, 50, fifty roughly fifty percent is in documentation, cost accounting, like you said. It seems weird with cost accounting because even in fixed price contracts, you're kind of supposed to track your expenditures there in the government world as well. Or is that is that not true?
1: Well, here's uh, I'm I'm looking at two pieces of paper, both uh, issued by the Defense Science Board way back in the 1990s. Report of the Defense Science Board Task Force on Defense Acquisition Reform, and then some. Um, responses to it in 1994. What the DSB uh, told the Department of Defense, they said the task force concludes that mature jet engines, microelectronics, software, and space systems can and should be procured and supported in a fully commercial environment. So there's entire segments of the defense industry that shouldn't have to follow defense rules it is feasible to eliminate many of the barriers to adoption of commercial practices without sacrificing the public trust in spending public funds. They also go on to point out modifying the requirements process to increase flexibility in order to allow value and price to replace cost-based acquisition. So they considered that to be feasible, and that would open up broad segments of the defense uh, marketplace to commercial practices. And of course, we haven't Done that. Among the areas that they've ta- they talked about that this could be done was uh, software, and today we're still wringing our hands over how to develop software. So I think the uh, the p- potential that the Defense Science Board uh, saw back in the 1990s has never really blossomed. I mean there's just there's too much inertia, there's too many people wedded to the system. Uh, I was actually on a Defense Science Board task force in uh in 2009 on fulfillment of urgent operational needs and we basically, you know, came to the conclusion that at that point in time, uh you know, other transactions uh existed both for science and technology projects as well as for prototype projects. And the idea, if you want to field capabilities rapidly, you have the legal authority to do it, but you need to get uh, people involved who are motivated, who are not burdened themselves with um, the traditions and culture of the highly regulated system, but are prepared to step outside of that and, uh, and look at new and different ways of of doing things. Uh, that's a key element in, in any
0: of this. Doesn't switching over to other transactions also challenge the existing players in the industry because they have all their structures set up for the sales motions, the cost accounting, earned value management, all these other things that are kind of required in the classical sense, and they've optimized their structures to go after that. And then if you have OTs, they're supposed to bring in non-traditionals, right? Right. But then, so you're almost trying to create a whole separate structure here. Right? You're not asking the procurement people to think differently. They almost have to contract with separate business units at least. Absolutely. And it's been done. I mean, the uh, some of the
1: the really outstanding programs like uh, Have Blue, which led to Senior Trend, which became the F-119, the, the first stealth aircraft. There, are, These companies have th- pockets of very efficient organizations whether they're called skunkworks or some other term they can create they can and they have created business segments that can be flexible and agile and as i just read to you there are various segments of industry that are ripe for operating in a commercial basis so no lockheed and boeing don't have to change their entire business structure to do this but they can get started by creating business entities, uh, business segments, that whether it's in software, space systems, microelectronics, whatever the, the target area might be, that can take advantage of OTs, where the, the personnel and the supporting systems uh, just don't have all of the legacy baggage and overhead that the traditional system uh, imposes. And I, I think if we actually end up operating the two systems in parallel, Then we will have good data to say, does it make sense to continue two systems or is one or the other of them better? We've never really done that. And we have people talking about OTs as if their whole purpose is merely dealing with segments of industry that don't traditionally do business with the federal government. Well, that's one of the benefits of OTs, but that's not their sole purpose. The purpose of OTs is to deal with the cost-too-much-takes-too-long traditional system. And OTs can cut through that and deliver capabilities more rapidly and better than the traditional cost-too-much-takes-too-long system. And sometimes you do it with uh, small startup companies, but you can also do it with major defense contractors, as the example of stealth technology uh, shows.
0: Yeah, I mean, that that makes some good sense. I'm just wondering for you, you. You see, some of these companies already starting to do that, like Lockheed and BAE. They have these venture arms. I think Raytheon is doing the same thing, where they're trying to bring in different organizations, essentially, and kind of grow them in a kind of like a venture kind of way. And but I guess a lot of people are still skeptical. You know, like that these that the OTs haven't really taken root, and there's going to be these production programs on the back end. So like a lot of outside VCs, they seem reluctant to put capital in. And then even with uh, the traditionals, they have their own programs to protect because it's often seen as a zero-sum game. How do you think about, you know, that challenge of of scaling these up?
1: Well, I mean, as far as as outside investment, as far as that question is concerned, I mean, you can have uh, an outside investor put money into a system, speed up its development, get it more wholesome than it would be, uh, standing around waiting for appropriations to dribble out. Year after year, it may not be a dual-use system at all. The sole market may be the defense market. But that investor can still get a return on investment from that market. And one of the things the investor is is looking at is what is the potential market, what is the return over years, right. even if it's a, a strategic bomber or a, you know re-winging the B-52 or re-engineing the B-52. If you could bring private money into that and have that occur much more rapidly than waiting for the POM the cycle and the appropriations cycle, the economies of that more optimum production cycle would al- allow an investor to uh, recap his re, uh, recoup his investment. And we're not even thinking that way today. Then when you talk about dual-use technologies, where the government's putting some some money in because it has an interest in developing the technology, but the commercial market may be much larger than any potential government market, That's very ripe for private investment. And again, when the private money goes in, that's money that the government's saving, basically. And when there's a commercial product in the marketplace that the government can take advantage of, again, the upgrade and sustainment costs are being shared with or entirely underwritten by private money rather than government dollars. And while there are some people in government that understand this and see this, We're not systematically trying to take advantage of these kind of opportunities. And other transactions, by the way, make those potentially attractive to the private sector as well as something that the government can do in a partnership-type arrangement.
0: Yeah, so one of the uh, issues here is, I think, the government culture of being able to pick up and run with this thing. We've seen some kind of blowback to OTAs. I think they're still on the rise, in the Department of Defense at least. But one of the things that you've, you've been saying, you said that... OTAs shop problems, the FAR shops requirements. Can you just describe what does that mean in, in the mindset and, and how things actually get done on a commercial more commercial way?
1: So in DoD, the, the requirements process is something that takes place before the acquisition system is involved. I mean, FAR 2.101 tells us when acquisition begins, and it begins when agency needs are known and requirements documented. That's when acquisition begins. In OT, the thinking starts with, what problem am I trying to solve? And the who I am is not just the requirements community. It's not just something separ- something before acquisition separate from requirements, namely the s and community or the acquisition community. It's all of those folks getting together, breaking down the stovepipes and talking to each other and having the people who need the capability in the fleet or force, understanding what the art of the possible is, understanding the economic implications of doing things one way or the other, and putting that all together as we start to figure out what is this capability going to be? How much is it going to cost? That's sort of the prototyping part of it. Once once we get our our problem pretty well Define, then we want to go out and say, "Can something like that really work? Does it really fit our needs and do it in real life? actually have something there a system or a platform or a process uh, in place that we can actually test out and uh, and see how it, what the addi- additional capability is going to be? Can we harness private investment uh, in this? Just asking a whole series of questions that don't get asked. In the requirements process, and of course, they don't get asked in the acquisition pro- process because acquisition just accepts requirements and continues on down its path without continual re-examina- reexamination. You know, does the state of the technology change during the years of development? You know, and should we therefore change? A whole different uh, thought process is involved.
0: So, when when you say something like OT shop problems. It feels to me something like the government should state its problem, hopefully in a dual use case, something like launch, let's just say. But then, so it, it states its problem, and then the firms or industry is able to actually think about these things themselves and not have the design process kind of like dual hatted, where there's different types of requirements coming in that constrains their ability to solve actual problem in a way that wouldn't have been thought of if you tried to set the requirements for the technical specifications ahead of time. You had a good quote from Einstein, you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that created it. So in other words, like if government is building all these requirements for the thing, it presumes that they already have solved the problem for the most part. But then if they were able to solve the problem, why hasn't it been solved in the past through some other kind of process? So I guess the question here really is, you know, when is it proper for government to start entering in this design requirements, you know, more detailed specifications process? And when should like, you know, industry be able to go out and kind of like have a clean sheet do do things from first principles in their own way, see what works out in like a prototype and then kind of go along?
1: I don't think there's any one answer to that. I mean, I think it has to be strategized on a case-by-case basis. I was working uh, with the group that was supporting the Navy, Naval Air Systems Command, looking at a uh, an unmanned aerial system to uh, do uh, resupply work from ship to shore, ship to ship. And uh, the requirement, if you will, came in from the fleet in great detail. And nowhere in parsing through the requirement could you actually see what problem they were trying to solve. And so that was the first question is, what problem are you trying to to solve. Virtually all of the requirement document could be done away with. And then the question was, what does industry have out there as potential solutions to the requirement? I mean, it's just a completely different way of looking at the at the problem. The next problem that we confronted as a private organizations supporting government was we were working with the Navy's lab structure. And we said, fine, you know, put together the team, start to to understand the problem, get the end users involved as well as the potential developers. And you know we can lay out a program, and the program could be an unfunded demonstration, a, a, an unfunded OOT where private companies come in and show what they have now, what their current state of the art is. And that would be a, a, an open call, a competitive process, if you would. And then that could transition seamlessly into a prototype project, which if the prototype project then paid off, could transform seamlessly into a production and fielding of capability. And what we got from the lab guys was, we don't do acquisition. We're not going to go out to industry and say, we're going to start a process that could actually end in acquisition and production and fielding. And I'm just sitting there you know, scratching my head saying, what are you in business for? If you're not the front end of that entire process, whose uh, ultimate goal is enhancing the capability of our fighting forces, why are you in business at all?
0: Right. Hey, you you brought up something interesting there—the uh, unfunded other transactions. I'd like you to just kind of talk about, you know, we're talking about these early stage and then how they scale, but definitely in the early stages, you have these um, cooperative research and development agreements, the CRADA, and you can use those to kind of have access to government labs and, and kind of like requirements, but there's no kind of like real process for getting at like military users and some of the requirements from like the PMOs, the PEOs and, and that level. So can you just describe how can other transactions kind of, wait, first, what are the cooperative research and development agreements? And then how can OTs be used in a similar way to get that iterative cycle of requirements and technology feedback going?
1: Cooperative research and development agreements are contractual instruments under the Technology Transfer Act in Title 15 of the U.S. Code. And directors of federal laboratories have authority to enter into CRADAs, these Cooperative Research and Development Agreements. Government funds may not flow to the private sector through a CRADA. Private sector funds may flow to the government. The idea behind the CRADA is there are these government laboratories out there that have lots of neat, potentially useful technology sitting around on the shelf. And if only we could get some private sector involvement, possibly some private sector investment at least private sector understanding of what these technologies were, they could be put into use and it would be beneficial to America's economy and potentially they could be developed for mission purposes for the government agency as well. So that's sort of the idea. Of course, some people will say there's not a lot of valuable technology sitting on the shelves <laughs> of government laboratories, but that's not a universal, uh, universally uh, held view. OTs can be, be used for essentially the same purpose, partnering with industry for industry to understand what the government has, what government needs, and government understanding what industry has and how it could potentially be applied. And you, you mentioned things like PEOs and you know folks that have, have mission and money and need to get things fielded. They also have the keys to ranges and uh, laboratory facilities and things that, that the government has that may be unique and that industry might want to take uh, advantage of. There's ways for the government to deal with industry to allow that to happen, but those are often highly regulated systems too. And they can, can take place under OTs with very little bureaucracy and regulation involved, basically common sense partnering type arrangements that allow government and industry to collide and understand each other's capabilities and needs to the mutual advantage of both.
0: One of the things that OTs kind of makes me think about, I guess, is kind of like the informal business nature of, and the commercial really nature that when you think about like a major firm, they don't have these requirements to look like they're fair and giving everybody a shot and an opportunity in the kind of standard way that the government does. So when I think about OTs, you have a big government ecosystem, many different players. They all have their own judgment and valuations. Of different technologies and requirements, and if they go out and use more OTs, then it seems like there's more discretion potentially in how those things are used, and it's not a transparent process, even if it brings up better results in the end. Do you think that's like one of the worrying points, like just this facade of fairness or something like that?
1: Well, I I think the current system is fundamentally unfair. And if it was fair, there would be much, much broader participation in the system than than there is now.
0: I think that's a good response. (laughs) (laughs) I think most most companies trying to get into the sector, they kind of feel like everything is biased against them. Absolutely. One of the things about OTs is also that there seems to be some issue about what kind of color of money, what appropriation Is it only research and development funds that can be used for these things? Can, you know, like it seems the Air Force has been standing up a PEO for kind of sustainment innovation. So there's even innovation in the sustainment side. Can can I use operations and maintenance money with OTs?
1: In the uh, November 2018 uh, DOD Other Transaction Guide, it's very clearly stated that the decision on funding instrument, OT, procurement contract, or possibly something else, and the decision on the right appropriation to use are two separate decisions. The illustration would be, you don't look at the funding instrument. The question isn't, is it an OT or not? The question is, what are the characteristics of the project that are being supported by the funding instrument? And the financial management manual regulation, excuse me, 7000.14R, does not define what OTs are or create a definition of prototype or the words that are in the statute. They, they don't define the words in the statute. This, the statute is sui generis. It means what it means. It has its own history. It has its own meaning. However, the financial management regulation provides some illustrations. For example, what appropriations would you use for the very first launch of a space launch vehicle? And the answer per the financial management manual is either R&D or procurement funds what appropriations would you use to conduct research and development on the upgrade of a fielded system no longer in production? And the answer is O&M funds. So even if you turn to the financial management regulation, you will find examples of conducting R&D with O&M. And as I said, the, the issue really is what's the purpose of the project? And then you fit the appropriation to the purpose of the project, and you don't worry about whether it's a 10 U.S.C. 2371 OT, a 2371 BOT, or even 2373 procurement for experimental purposes. The question is, what is it that you're doing? What What are you going to spend that money doing? That's the, the question. And so, no, OTs don't limit the color of money. The The characteristics of the project limit uh, are, are define what the uh, uh, appropriation should be.
0: So that sounds like there's a lot of a lot of innovation can be happening on the well, both procurement, but really like the operations and maintenance side, which is a really large account. I think like, for example, big safari from the air force, they're pretty innovative. I think they mostly operate out of operations and maintenance account. I'm not hundred percent sure on that. I want to ask you whether the O and M account, is that a big growth opportunity for innovation in OTs? Because it seems like on the R and D procurement side, Everything is line itemed into a program and a project, and that takes two plus years of programming. And that in itself, just that funding mechanism is not commercial, even if you're trying to use a commercial contract. Whereas if you have O and M, it seems like there's more flexibility in the in in the allocations of the funds on, on that side.
1: Pro- procurement funds have been used, O and M funds have been used for uh, with other other transactions. And this is one of the issues that we talk about in our in our conferences and in our in our training is if you're if you're going to start executing OTs, you need the government needs to put together an action team, and the action team needs to be be uh, have representation from comptroller and financial management people, for example. I mean, you're going to sit there and you're going to lay out a strategy and it says, this is what makes sense to go from where we are now at a technology state or level uh, to out there. That's the capability that we want. And in order to get from here to there, these are the steps that we're going to have to go through. And we need to think about things like what uh, appropriations are available, what accounts can we extract money from? Uh, is there potential for private investment? Would that accelerate the project? I mean, there's just a, a plethora of questions that can be answered once you start to think strategically and everything doesn't fit into a preconceived box. And that's really what OTs do. They open up the uh, the potential. And while I'm talking about preconceived uh, boxes and, and notions, I mean, one of the issues that we have in OTs and in OT education and training is the issue of proactive resistance or proactive interference, which is a, an educational psychology term that says there are certain cases where pre-existing learning limit you from subsequent learning part of the workforce that's most susceptible to that is the contracting officer workforce because they have been they have learned from that first slide with the jail bars in it to follow the regulations and there are certain terms that they hear that they immediately put far implications into i mean one of the things that i say at training sessions is there are no in scope and out of scope changes with ot's there are just changes there are just modifications part 43 of the far doesn't apply Um, payable milestones are fixed obligations, but they're not fixed price contracts. They're not the same thing. They're different concepts. There's many things like this. Um, We often bring private money, and by shorthand, we call it cost sharing. None of the statutes actually use the term cost sharing. But if you say cost sharing to a contracting officer, it invokes Part 16 of the FAR. Well, all cost-shared contracts have to be cost reimbursement contracts. Well, that's not true for OTs. You don't have to have a cost reimbursement structure in order to mix private and government money in the same project. And of course, the financial management people will think, well, augmentation of appropriations. Well, what's prohibited is the unauthorized augmentation of appropriations. The OT statutes encourage private money being brought in to a project, and it's completely legal to do that. Money that comes into an OT can be uh, put into a special account. doesn't have to be Turned over to the Treasury of the United States, it can be used for additional prototyping or R&D work. These are all concepts that are counter, uh, countercultural to contracting people and financial management people who are, you know, well-schooled in, in the systems that they are experts in. But when they come into an OT environment, they have to realize that some of these preconceived notions just don't apply.
0: I want to get you uh, to just give us a guess here, maybe a range. What what proportion do you think of total contracts, dollars obligated by the government, should, like, in your optimal world, use other transactions?
1: All S&T dollars.
0: All S&T. Yes. But that's just 6.1 to 6.3. What about anything and, past and, there? Cause and, you- oh,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. But I'm saying... For starters, there's no reason why all S&T dollars couldn't be OTs. And then you just start uh, exploring, you know, is it a prototype project? Well, then why why aren't we using an OT here? So that's in 6.4, right? Well, I mean, the prototype project could be a prototype project related to a fielded system. It could, it could relate to sustainment. It could be uh, applying additive manufacturing in in a new context, bringing in, uh, testing out uh, a known and existing civilian capability, but putting it into a military uh, context that has never been done before. I mean, these can be mature technologies. Um, I mean, we give the illustration in the, uh, you, you ha- have our uh, Strategic Institute OT guide there. We give the uh, the illustration of the Commercial Operations and Support Savings Initiative, which was run for several years in the late 90s and early 2000s, where we took uh, an existing or underdevelopment civilian capability that could be a substitute for uh, an out-of-production part on a legacy system and then uh, did some non used R&D funds to do non-recurring engineering, create a kit that has form, fit, and function compatibility with the legacy system, qualify that. And if you do all those things, you also have the buying command involved in the project. And they say, if you create this, if you create a qualified system that has at least the functionality of the existing component and it costs less, I'll buy it. And that worked for a number of years when it was managed by DARPA and later centrally managed by OSD uh, under DARPA in, uh, two years with $100 million of R&D expenditure, the uh, net present value analysis of savings was $3 billion. And we're not doing that today. But that's using OTs in a sustainment context. So so the spectrum of where you could use OTs goes uh, entirely across from front-end S&T to uh, sustainment and even decommissioning.
0: You said one of the biggest problems there is just the way that people think about writing the contracts. And then they, they often bring in FAR language or, or thinking that they've they picked up during the FAR. How do you shift that thinking? Is there templates? What, what do you advise for people?
1: What I advise for people, my advice hasn't been taken. When we got started at DARPA, we said we were going to use clean sheet of paper contract. Each project, we were, we were going to decide what the terms and conditions we needed, we were going to start the process by getting all the parties, the stakeholders around the table and saying, why are you here? And first exploring and making sure that there were no discontinuities between the end states that the various parties uh, wanted to see, that we had congruent interests. If we have congruent interests, we can probably agree on terms and condition on how to get to where we want to, to go. But the first state was to understand that we really could work together. And when you have that open discussion, you create a vision statement, you create the narrative of why we're here, why we're doing this, then actually negotiating the the detailed terms and conditions becomes much easier. So that was the Rick Dunn version. It has worked. Having said that, and having said it it worked successfully on a number of occasions, we also found that both government people and industry people said, please give us an outline. Please give us a template, you know, more than just a clean sheet of paper. And so at DARPA, we did that. We had a, a model agreement that we came up with, and all innovation in that area stopped. People just used the model and made very few changes to it. OT agreements today, 30 years later, nearly 30 years later, you can look at the terms and conditions, and most of them are the same terms and conditions in our original DARPA model from a, two and a half decades ago. And I, I really think the work that we did can be improved upon.
0: I, I wanted to just circle back real quick, back to the how much of the government spending should be in OTs. So is it your opinion that, for example, like a major full-scale development or, for example, like the procurement of major hardware services, that should not use? You should just go with a fixed price kind of FAR contract or the the authorities don't branch out to OT's right now but OT's potentially could be used for that very successfully like what is your opinion on well of
1: course they can be they they can be used if the predecessor steps are a OT awarded under a competitive process that becomes a prototype project that leads to production so the prototype project may be the equivalent of full-scale development. I mean, let's say the prototype project is an already developed commercial item, which is then tested and modified for military purposes. I mean, it could be very mature technology. We just don't know whether it's going to work or not in a military context. And at the end of that successful prototype project, you go into full-scale production, all under an OT. Now, the statute allows you, at the end of that prototype project, To go into production via a non-competitive procurement contract, a modification of the OT or a new production OT, or, and this has not happened yet, it allows the Secretary of Defense to create a new contracting system for that purpose.
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) So potentially a much greater, you know, like the S&T budget, I think it's up to like 3% of the DOD total. But you would say like, you know, much greater percent. Of of federal spending Absolutely. could be done through these mechanisms if they were done early. They planned. I think you you have to say that you're going to do production. Oracle yes. have a protest that basically got upheld because the, the
1: the guide says if you're going to do a prototype project, you have to alert potential offerors that there's a production payoff at the end as a as a, one of the potential uh, outcomes. That's even the case. If you have no intention of going into production, you just want a technology, you want a prototype for a technology demonstration, but the guide says you have to say that there's a the potential for production.
0: Right. <laughs> hopefully, if you're very successful as a firm doing some research and development, you know, hopefully you're going into production. That's kind of the goal. So before we wrap up here, I wanted to just ask you about other transactions consortiums or consortia. Can you just talk a little bit about, like, what is a consortium and where do you see that go? Like, where did it come from and where do you see it going?
1: What's a consortium? I would commend everyone to go to a dictionary. And the essence of a consortium is uh, an association of firms or individuals to conduct a purpose or to reach a goal that none of them can do individually. It's an association with a common goal. The OT consortia today I call so called consortia because they don't fit that model. They don't fit the dictionary definition of what a consortium uh, is. I refer to them, and by the way, I should say most of them because I'll make some point out some exceptions. I refer to them as basically structured as multiple award task order contracts. The government hires and has privity of contract with a consortium management firm that goes out and sort of beats the bushes and tries to bring in a number of companies with capabilities that relate to the purpose of the consortium and then those companies all have individual membership agreements with the consortium management firm, typically pay fees to the consortium management firm. And then government funders come to the consortium, come through through the government contracting office, come to the consortium management firm and say, we have a requirement. And that is put in, that becomes a request for project proposals, which is then spread out I'm then sent to the consortium members, uh, who then decide whether or not to submit proposals and compete as individual companies for that potential award. And the awards typically are money flowing through the consortium management firm, which enters into a sub-project agreement with the firm that has been selected. So the government actually doesn't have a direct relationship of privity with the performer. Its relationship is with the consortium management firm, who in turn has the relationship with the performer. Now, n- not all of them are like that. There's there's one of the more recent consortia that goes through that same process, but then the award is made directly from the government to the performing company. There's another consortium, and, and there's over two dozen of these. One of th- The oldest of the consortium is called the National Shipbuilding Technology Programme, and it doesn't look like that at all. In the National Shipbuilding Technology Program, it's it's modeled on one of our early DARPA consortia, and it's really a joint funding agreement where you have several shipyards together jointly co-funding with the government technologies that will make the shipyards more efficient and therefore their ability to produce what the government needs more efficiently and effectively. That model is not being, that, that's a very powerful model, and that particular consortium model is not being replicated regularly. I brought with me today a booklet called the Technology Reinvestment Project. This is, uh, this is a sort of a glossy uh, coffee table uh, booklet, which outlines actually a uh, hundreds of projects that were put together in the early 1990s where companies were brought together to work together on particular problems. There was a, a technology reinvestment project solicitation, and these were all uh, multi-party, cost-shared, or jointly funded agreements, and they did a, a, a number of uh, sort of really outstanding uh, projects that had big payoffs for, for the government. The, the other interesting thing about the technology reinvestment project was... There were firms that got together and put their, their their company partnership together, proposed to the government, and did not get government funding. And they said to themselves, you know, we really put together a great project here. We're going to go forward without government funding. It was the government that was the instigator that got the companies to start talking together. And oftentimes there are companies out there, each of which has uh, valuable technology, which on its own is not going to be a capability. But if they partnered with other companies, and especially if they had the support and guidance of the government, they they could put together quite a product uh, in, in the end result. And in while under DARPA sponsorship, the technology reinvestment project, uh, DARPA put in $762 million of government funding and leveraged over a billion dollars of private sector funding.
0: Just to um, get this straight here, you're saying that the model where you have a consortium manager the government has a multiple task force coming in from different funding agencies whoever needs the service they'll go on that contract goes to the consortium manager and then they kind of like bid out to to all the the companies to see who wants to get involved right that's not the model that you're thinking about you're thinking about something different where you have Companies like what you're talking about, the shipbuilding industry, they kind of come together, and and how is and the government directly contracts with those companies?
1: Yes, yeah, the 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 companies form their own governance regime, how you know how they're going to interact with with the government. They may select an entity that looks like a consortium management firm. But the consortium manage their their consortium management. Firm, at DARPA, we called it an integrating subcontractor. That firm works for industry, not for government. Industry decides what technology areas they want to solicit proposals for.
0: So industry decides what projects they kind of want to work on, and then they kind of bring that to the government.
1: Right. Okay. The government has an overall goal. You know, we want to drive down shipbuilding cost right. for submarines, aircraft carriers, uh, surface. Vessels, whatever the case may be, you know, maybe our emphasis is on, you know, hull design. Maybe it's on propulsion or whatever. But you know, we have something we'd like to see accomplished. It's going to get accomplished through shipyards. Therefore, we want the shipyards involved in figuring out the most effective way to get to the end state. Of the overall, you know, the government ha- has the overarching goal, but industry has the expertise on what specific types of things get you to that overall goal. So we're really partnering with industry. We're putting our money in, they're going to put some money in. Shipbuilders, of course, build not just warships, but they also build commercial ships. So if they're more efficient in that, arena, that's to their benefit as well. So, so we're looking for those win-win opportunities. Can't do everything that way, but you can do a lot of stuff that way. And as I mentioned, the Defense Science Board said that, you know, among other things, jet engines, that was the first of these uh, joint funding consortia that we put together at, uh, at DARPA, is is one of those areas where you really don't need the government overlayer. You know, you can do this in a strictly commercial basis. And uh, that, that first project that we had uh, with jet engines was actually, to uh, to introduce um, high-performance ceramic fibers into jet engine components. Uh, that was back in the you know 1990s, and today the F-119 engine, the F-135 engine, all the high-performance jet engines have c- uh, ceramic matrix fiber components for for weight savings and temperature uh, uh, high-temperature operations uh, in them that have flowed out of that uh, agreement all those years ago. Instead of Focusing on one company and having one company have a competitive advantage, the entire – we we had seven jet – we had the entire national industrial base of jet manufacturers involved in that consortium. And they worked – to even though the, it was Pratt and GE and – even though they were competitors, they could work together on certain things.
0: And yeah, when I look at the broader commercial economy, you see – a lot of these things kind of, disar- you're seeing new companies on the vertical and the horizontal that are providing services for, for everyone else. So like you go to Amazon, AWS, right, for your cloud services, you don't build full stack a whole cloud for yourself. And then every other guy in the industry does the same thing. But with the government, it seems that we're always funding end items, right? We're like, we're looking for this completely integrated systems the weapon systems approach right from from the RAND days in the 50s it, this seems like a good vehicle for you know industry to come in and say like what kind of shared services can we and you're starting to see this in government a little bit with enterprise tools but you know can we disaggregate some things can we build build out new components enabling technologies that either we share or we all benefit from and brings down costs
1: this is the issue of What's the problem that we're trying to solve and get, get that kind of thinking in up front and do the strategizing, you know, and, you know, it's like DARPA was behind the Internet. And, you know, if you had let, you know, a, a typical government response would be, oh, get IBM to do it, you know, get ATT. And, well, no, no, wait a minute. We, you know, we want an Internet a network of networks. We want compatibility among all of these dissimilar networks. Getting one integrator involved in that is not the way to do it.
0: It's how you get the stovepipes and then each system has its own logistics trail and then there's no kind of commonality built, back, built into the system from the first place. One,
1: one of these uh, technology reinvestment projects, uh, for example, was, was called the uh, Trauma Care Information Management System. And it had uh, Rockwell Collins involved, uh, AT&T, I believe, had a government agency, Defense uh, Health Services University. It had three or four small companies and it had uh, three or four, four other universities involved. The backbone of the information system, the interface data for the functional nodes was all developed jointly and openly. And the functional nodes were each proprietary. So within one agreement structure, you had an entirely open system and an entirely proprietary system. And of course, those proprietary nodes, because the interface data was open, could be changed out generation to generation. And the original developer of the functional node, wasn't necessarily going to be the guy for the second generation. If somebody else came up with a better way to do it, the system could accommodate an upgraded system from a different supplier. So, I mean, it's, you know, what are the needs? What what are needs are we trying to, to solve? What are, What's the problem we're trying to solve? When we start thinking that way and we have the flexibility of OTs, we just open up whole new horizons.
0: Yeah, it's crazy how we kind of get locked into some of these structures and You know, I think back in 2017, the National Defense Authorization Act. They kind of said we want modular systems, but it's like, well, how do how do we get there? You know, like the littoral combat ship, that was modular in a sense, but that I don't think that was modular in the way that we're thinking that the way that you're kind of bringing it out in this broader context, how how it evolves over time, and how you have open interfaces that kind of aren't just pre-programmed by the government saying this is the interface, this is what is gonna be. So I'd like to just close us out here. How can people learn more about other transactions and get some training from you as well?
1: I would uh, commend folks to the Strategic Institute website where we have lots of articles that are available. Strategic Institute itself uh, offers education and training and consulting. Um, as you're well aware, we've put on a, a number of conferences. We're we're evolving our uh, our business model. We probably won't be doing a lot of conferences where we carry the entire burden of event planning and marketing and all that. So we will be looking to partner with other organizations. But I mean, we're prepared to do uh, on-site education and training sessions, as I said, we will probably be partnering and be doing some conferences and we make ourselves available to do uh, to do consulting. And we'd really like to target organizations, companies, government agencies that have projects in mind and want to explore what the possibilities for OTs are or for, for doing things flexibly and innovatively, really. And, it, and OTs may be the answer to that or they may... There may be some other answer, but
0: uh, that's what we'd like to help people uh, with. Richard Dunn, thanks for being on Acquisition Talk. Thank you. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.